Hello and welcome to the political history of the United States. Episode 4.24, The First Continental Congress. During the late summer and early fall of 1774, there were twin events going on simultaneously that would forever alter the relationship between Britain and her 13 American colonies. We have spent the last two episodes covering the debate over, and ultimately the selection process of the delegates to the upcoming Continental Congress. By the middle of August, everybody, with the exception of Georgia, had selected their delegates and had sent marching orders for the upcoming meeting in Philadelphia. As everybody is getting ready to come together to form a coordinated response. In Massachusetts, things were progressing along a different path. Sure, Massachusetts was going to be sending delegates. Samuel Adams, John Adams, Thomas Cushing, and Robert Treat Payne were heading to Philadelphia. However, even as these men are traveling and taking part in the Congress, civil order inside the colony itself was beginning to rapidly deteriorate. Before we get going for today, I want to take just a moment and explain to you all how I plan to approach this because there are several events going on at right about the same time. For today, I am going to begin by laying out the overview for what is happening in Massachusetts, immediately prior to the Congress. Then we are going to spend the remainder of our episode in Philadelphia. The events back in New England are, as we will see later today, going to very directly influence the direction of the Congress. So next time, we are going to double back and explore everything going on outside of Philadelphia that directly influenced the Congress, and then tie everything together. Got it? Good. The situation in Boston had been very tense, to say the least, for a very long time now. We have obviously spent a lot of our time on this podcast, in Boston throughout the ongoing crisis, and it had really become the focal point of the current struggle. The new acts that had been put into place had been clearly pointed towards Massachusetts, and more specifically Boston itself, as the Crown desperately attempted to rein in their increasingly wayward colony. The Port Act was a very direct opening salvo. However, events would be pushed forward on August the 6th, with the arrival of a British man-of-war, the Scarborough. Among the contents of this ship was the colony's official notice of both the Massachusetts Government Act and the Justice Act. The news of these acts came as hardly a surprise to anybody. Everybody, both inside and outside of Boston, had known about them for some time. If you will recall from last time, we had discussed how, despite the indignation over the Port Act, the other colonies feared the seemingly arbitrary, unilateral modification of the Massachusetts Charter. Such actions essentially meant that the charters were almost completely worthless, a position that deeply concerned the colonists. However, aside from being aware that such changes were coming, the new provisions could not officially be put into place until the documents physically arrived. Thomas Gage acted quickly with his new powers, and swore in a new council almost immediately. Right off the bat, problems became apparent when only around half actually showed up, 
largely as a result of intimidation at the hands of the colonists. There were some attempts by the members of the new council to take up their posts. However, for that to happen, they had to deal with very real threats of harm from the Massachusetts colonists. These actions ranged from large groups sitting down with the new councillors and having a nice chat with them about why they should resign, to incidents of violence and having windows shot out from muskets. For those who did decide to attend the council, despite the threats, they found that Thomas Cage was willing to use the army to get control. But they all told him that was probably going to be a bad idea. They warned him that by this point there were so many ongoing issues that it would be impossible for the army to do anything to regain control. It is also fair to assume that the council, seeing the widespread intimidation taking place, likely figured that deploying the army would only have made a bad situation worse by further enraging the already enraged colonists. Among the bigger ramifications of these acts is that upon their arrival, the courts quickly ground to a near standstill. The issue was that the colonists pretty quickly figured out that under the act, they could essentially flat-out refuse to serve. This means that getting enough people to actually form a jury became an impossible task. Furthermore, even amongst the lawyers, there was a general movement away from peaceful cooperation. Those lawyers who sided with the Whig, or American, cause had moved solidly into the camp of obstructing ongoing proceedings. The acts likewise completely failed at their stated objective of getting a hold on town meetings, often hotbeds of radical organization. This was not as though there were some loopholes to be exploited either. There weren't. Town meetings were banned without permission. The issue, rather, was that the colonists simply ignored the provision and met anyway. In Salem, this would lead to the arrest of several members of the Committee of Correspondence. However, even here, the men bonded back out and just went right back to meeting. Now, on its face, none of this may sound like that much of a radical departure from where we have long been when it comes to Massachusetts. After all, the last decade of history in Boston has been one of upheavals and tumults. We have had riots. We have had years' worth of resistance, outright ignoring imperial law. Gage is far from being our first frustrated governor, trying to deal with his recalcitrant colonists. Yet, as true as that is, this time really it is different from those previous times. First, there is the obvious benefit of hindsight that we have that they did not. These waves of resistance always came in just that form. Waves. They would grow. Everybody would be acting at a fever pitch, and then they would recede back into something resembling normal life. This happens right after the Stamp Act, where there was a period of a return to normalcy. We talked about it again back during episode 4.18, discussing that so-called pause in politics. People get worn out from the events and move back towards normalcy. Hindsight tells us, however, that this is not going to happen this time. As it stands, we are just six months away from the events of Lexington and Concord. There will not be a return to normal life this time. Of course, we should always keep in mind that 
we know this now. The colonists did not yet have this information. What we do know is that during the late summer and into the fall, there was a change in how people talked about the crisis. By the time that Massachusetts delegates are settling down in Philadelphia, there was open discussion in Massachusetts about warfare. Dr. Joseph Warren was communicating with Samuel Adams that his real fear was that an open rebellion was approaching. John Adams had been writing home to a friend who openly expressed to him the very real concern that was taking over as the government continued to break down. During the Congress itself, rumors would find their way to the delegates that war had in fact broken out in Boston. The most serious such report stated that six Americans had been killed in a confrontation with the British regulars who were attempting to confiscate gunpowder. This incident had then progressed to a general bombardment of the city of Boston. These rumors were obviously false. Boston was not shelled during the summer of 1774. We are going to talk more in coming episodes, however, about the fact that around this time, a race did begin between the British and the Americans to hoard gunpowder, munitions, and weapons. We are also going to spend next week discussing the events that led to this rumor in the first place. Thomas Gage recognized the severity of his current predicament. He wrote about doing everything that he could to prolong the outbreak of war as long as he could, though he admitted that by this point, he viewed it as being more of an inevitability than anything else. By the end of the summer in 1774, therefore, both the British and the Americans seemed to be coming around to the stark realization that a major conflict was coming and that the question was increasingly shifting away from if bloodshed would occur, but rather to when. While the situation in Massachusetts was becoming more critical and increasingly dire, to the South in Philadelphia, the colonists were assembling to discuss the ongoing strife. As the delegations arrived in Philadelphia for the Congress, which was set to begin on September 5th, there was a sense of pride amongst the members concerning their present undertaking. Everybody knew that what was happening was an unprecedented occurrence within the colonies, and they recognized the importance of the moment. Yes, there had been the Stamp Act Congress. However, even that was a considerably smaller affair. The colonists were coming together for the express purpose of issuing a rebuke of Great Britain and planning actions against them. For those in attendance, and more generally Americans throughout the colonies, this was a big moment. It is important to remember that the delegates arriving in Philadelphia did not do so in a vacuum. The Congress was not some minor event, but was just as sensational of a news story throughout the colonies as you probably would imagine. In the immediate lead-up to the meeting, newspapers were publishing frequently about it as several of the leading intellectuals snapped at the chance to pen their opinion of the present state of affairs. Now, in the interest of not getting ourselves bogged down, I'm not going to go into deep detail on all of these. However, I think we do need to spend at least some time looking at a few of the contrasting opinions as well as taking a closer look at possibly the most important of these pamphlets, a summary view of the rights of British Americans, 
penned by the then 31-year-old Thomas Jefferson. We are going to talk generally about some of the works other than Jefferson's. However, considering that in less than two years' time, he is going to be the primary author of the Declaration of Independence, a bit of extra attention does seem to be warranted. Jefferson, in his writing, took the position that the colonies stood in voluntary union with Great Britain, explaining that during the Norman conquest of William the Conqueror, America was certainly not a conquered land. This was a key distinction for Jefferson. His argument was that the colonies were not founded through conquest, but rather by free men who voluntarily chose to leave Great Britain. Jefferson writes to the king to remind him that our ancestors, before their immigration to America, were the free inhabitants of the British dominions in Europe, and possessed a right which nature has given to all men, of departing from the country in which chance, not choice, has placed them, of going in quest of new habitations, and of their establishing societies under such laws and regulations as to them shall seem most likely to promote the public happiness. Though with far more eloquence, Jefferson is writing that the American colonists were not a conquered people. They came to North America with all of their rights intact and did not waive any of those rights as a consequence of their immigration. In conclusion, Jefferson reminds George III that their rights are not a gift from the monarch, but, as a free people, are inherent by nature. In his respectful rebuke of the king, he states that the American people don't want to separate from Great Britain, but does make clear that the option is at least on the table. Thomas Jefferson's view on all of this is that the king and the colonies are parties to a contract, specifically a social contract that lays out all of these rules. George III is not ruling through divine right. Rather, the American colonists had agreed to recognize his role within the previously created framework. This framework that George III was constrained to operate within was the acknowledgement of the colonists' natural rights. There was likewise comments within Jefferson's writings where he openly questioned the future of the colonies as being part of the British Empire. He was clear that he wanted to see that relationship remain intact. However, the fact that he had to state this in the first place goes to show just how far things had progressed over the last several years. Such declarations during the Stamp Act crisis would have been unnecessary because nobody was talking about separation. Here, however, it is clear that the conversation had materially changed. Although Jefferson's summary view was the most famous tract from these days leading up to the convention, it was not the only one. William Henry Dayton wrote his letters from a freeman, asking the question of if Britain had the legal authority to force despotism on the colonists. In the anonymously penned letter from a Virginian, the argument, however, shifts back towards reconciliation and more defined integration into the empire. The argument warned of the dangers that a war would bring. The author writes that war is an uncertain event that would lead to the destruction of their trade, surrender of ports and capitals, and would bring misery to thousands. In conclusion, 
The pamphlet warns that by denying the British the right of taxation, they are giving her the right of conquest. Again, these writings are not exclusive, and rather represent a handful of the better-known ones. The Congress was a big deal, and there were certainly people busy talking and writing about it in the months before the meeting. Within all of these writings, there are a few general takeaways that are important to note. First, it is apparent that by the end of the summer of 1774, there was a palpable sense that war was, at a minimum, a possibility. While the civil government in Boston was actively breaking down, throughout the other colonies, there is a sense in the writings that everybody was heading towards a looming precipice from which there could be no return. As seen from the writing by Jefferson, the question had evolved from specific questions over taxation to more broad questions about the natural rights of the Americans. There was likewise still nothing resembling consensus that everybody supported the American cause. There were, to be sure, other publications which openly denounced the Congress. Although a war of words was busy circulating throughout the colonial press, at the beginning of September, it was time to actually get down to business. Beginning on September 5th, the first order of business was to lay down the ground rules. Meeting at Carpenter's Hall, the delegates decided that voting would be done by colonial delegation. There were 12 colonies present, and therefore, there would be 12 total votes. Rules were put in place to establish parliamentary rules. Who could talk when and for how long? It was likewise decided that the proceedings should be kept secret, something that is a bit unfortunate for us, since it does leave some mystery to the actual Congress. The delegates also wasted no time in forming two separate committees that would look at the two most pressing issues. The first was set to the task of articulating exactly what the rights of the colonists were, something that had been informally done many, many, many times before, since 1765. This group would then examine how those same rights were being violated and, most importantly, propose actions on how to deal with those violations. The other committee set to the task of looking at the intolerable acts and figuring out exactly what their overall impact was. Although the proceedings were meant to be kept secret, in reality, there were quite a few leaks in the ship. Joseph Galloway, for instance, was sending information into New Jersey to Governor William Franklin, who was then passing the information down the road to his boss, Lord Dartmouth. Another potential leak may have come from John Jay of New York. So, despite these being officially secret proceedings, there was definitely some information getting out. Throughout the entire Congress, there remained persistent rumors of warfare in New England. By this point, there was already action being taken by the British to consolidate gunpowder stores, something that the colonists fiercely opposed and resisted. I've touched on these issues some today, but next time I'm going to go way deeper into the subject. But be aware that this would cast a shadow over the entire proceeding of the Congress. For the New England colonies, war now seemed like an inevitability, so much so that there was at least some talk about Congress having to become a war council 
Again, I'm not going to get deep into that here, because that is going to be the subject of our next episode. But just know that this is all going on contemporaneously to the Congress, and thus was absolutely helping to influence their decisions. When the Congress began, it quickly became apparent that you had three primary groups. Unsurprisingly, the New England colonies were the most radical. The Southern colonies, although certainly sympathetic to the New England colonies, carried with them serious reservations when it came to broad-scale boycotts. There was a palpable fear that such action could lead to economic devastation. The middle colonies proved to be the center of conservatism. There was fear that a boycott would itself lead to an open conflict with Britain, a conflict which could only be won by appealing to the Catholic French or Spanish, itself an unenviable solution. The split between the radical and conservative members was apparent throughout the entire Congress. Quickly after events began, the Congress broke down into those previously discussed committees. There was a general agreement amongst the many delegates that taxation without representation was a problem and was something that Parliament could not do. However, beyond that, the groups agreed on little. For the first week of the Committee to State the Rights of the Colonies, both John and Samuel Adams grew notably tired of the bickering and the lack of decisive action. Sam Adams specifically was profoundly annoyed at what he believed to be unnecessary debate and drift from the subject at hand. To the lament of Samuel Adams, everything seemed to have become bogged down. That was until a dispatch on September 16th that got everybody focused. Delivered by Paul Revere, the Suffolk resolves broke the deadlock decidedly in favor of the radical faction. For today, just know that the Suffolk Resolves were the most radical document yet produced and called for what historian John Fairling describes as non-allegiance to the royal government in Massachusetts. Now, this is obviously a very big deal. However, I want to stick with our story in Philadelphia this week. I promise I will come back in two weeks and we are going to talk in much, much more detail about the Suffolk Resolves. The resolves managed to get everybody off of the fence. Revere had brought the resolves south because he wanted congressional approval for them. This was going to force the Continental Congress to make a decision as to where they stood. Adoption of the resolves was going to push things further, and everybody knew it. The resolves directly addressed the issue of preparing the colony for the possibility of a coming military campaign and called for resistance against Great Britain. Support meant a boycott and nothing short of open defiance of the British policies. There remained the fact, however, that a conservative faction did remain. For the New England colonies, it was critical to them that they remained a united front with the other colonies. There is safety in numbers and neither Samuel nor John Adams was interested in seeing New England politically isolated. There is no question that the conservative faction could have, at a minimum, broken up that unanimity with a vote against the resolves. So, then the question that remains is why did the conservative faction decide to go along with what was clearly a radical New England bill? 
beyond just breaking the Congress and committees out of the endless loops of delay that almost immediately appeared. The resolves forced everybody to quickly take a position. The Congress needed to provide an answer, lest Suffolk move forward without them. Though the conservative faction clearly was worried about economic considerations, the debate over the Suffolk resolves made abundantly clear to everybody that things were going to trend towards a more radical faction, regardless of how much the conservatives wished otherwise. There was real fear that should the conservative faction vote against the resolves, not only would it break up the partnership and the generally agreed need for a united front, but also there was a non-zero chance that angry gatherings of people might let them know how much they disagreed with the vote against a general embargo. With the writing on the wall, the conservatives instead decided that the better play would be enduring the Suffolk resolves and hoping that the goodwill generated by sticking with the cause would garner them more support from the radical elements when the time inevitably came to figure out how to move forward with Great Britain. With that, the conservatives agreed, leaving the actual drafting of a response as the next task. I do want to be clear that the decisions reached by the First Continental Congress were not radical necessarily, and in fact would end up taking the largely anticipated moderate position. Though I know I did just mention the victory for the radicals, that victory did not necessarily produce an unexpected or radical result. John Jay helps us out here when he states the three options that the Congress had before it. Negotiation, suspension of commerce, and war. Although discussions of war now existed, and ideas such as outright separation were circulating, those did remain a fringe position. Most of the colonists in 1774, despite now openly talking about the possibilities, were not itching for an actual shooting war with the British. That was still too radical for the majority at the Congress. Although men like Richard Henry Lee and Patrick Henry did advocate action to begin the preparations for a potential armed confrontation. The defeat of the Conservatives as a result of the response to the Suffolk Resolves meant that the negotiation option was likewise off the table. Although the conservative camp wanted to negotiate with the British prior to the more dramatic actions, such as a boycott, this was simply too little too late. There had been years of pleas and remonstrances. More of the same was unlikely to accomplish much of anything, other than playing for time. This meant that the middle ground, a boycott, was going to be the next course of action, thus accomplishing the exact thing that most had anticipated prior to the meeting of the Congress. Although it was agreed that there would be a boycott, that term remains overly vague. What did a boycott actually mean? Non-importation obviously seems like a given, but what about the far more contentious question of non-exportation? Other questions remained as well. Should Massachusetts pay for the destroyed tea? Should they restore function to their courts that had been effectively crippled? Finally, how would this response be delivered both to the British leadership across the Atlantic, but also in the colonies? Non-importation was easier to agree to, 
though notably there was still some debate about potential exceptions. Despite those potential hangups, an agreement for non-importation was quickly in place, and it was agreed that the boycott would begin on December the 1st. This would give time for word to spread throughout the colonies, and for everybody to at least attempt to cancel orders that had already been placed. The question of non-exportation, however, was far more controversial. This battle lasted well into October, as everybody tried to carve out beneficial deals. Colonies from north to south would consider non-exportation. However, they demanded that certain concessions be made. In Massachusetts, this meant keeping fishing markets open. In the south, it meant timber and tobacco. In South Carolina, it meant rice. If you will recall, South Carolina had already decided that they would only go along with those provisions that they were in agreement with. This meant that everybody else had to reluctantly accept their exception. Joseph Galloway felt that non-exportation was a step too far and advocated for the creation of a colonial parliament. Galloway will, in time, end up becoming one of the most high-profile loyalists, possibly second to only William Franklin. However, it is worth noting that here in 1774, his suggestion for a colonial parliament would likely not have been something the British would have ever considered. Parliament was entrenching in their claim of sovereignty over the colonies. It seems very hard to think of a situation where they would have been willing to make such a dramatic concession. Under Galloway's plan, the passage of any law would have had to been approved by both the American and the British parliaments. However, even this step would have given the Americans what amounts to veto power over the British Parliament, something that was not about to happen. Despite these battles, ultimately compromise would win the day. As stated previously, December 1st would be the day that non-importation would begin. Non-consumption of East India Company tea would begin immediately, as that had been the unofficial official policy for the last year already. To the more contested arguments over non-exportation, the agreement took a more moderate stance. Non-exportation would not be immediate, and would instead be delayed until September 10, 1775. This accomplished a couple of things. It gave everybody time to prepare and, hopefully, avoid the matter altogether. The real hope here is that months of non-importation would cause enough disruption that the British would cave to American demands, thus rendering the need for non-exportation moot. If, on the other hand, the British did hold out, it provided a nice escalator clause a year into the future to help ramp up the pressure. Much to the considerable relief of Massachusetts, it was agreed that the destroyed tea would not be reimbursed. The Congress also decided that, in the interest of unity, committees would be elected throughout the colonies to assist in the enforcement of these acts. In direct response to the failings of the non-importation agreements of the Townsend Acts, this time they would take no chances. These committees would have the power of inspecting records to ensure compliance. Breaches of the boycott would lead to the publication of offenders' names in the colonial papers, 
and it was further agreed that anybody found to be violating the boycott would be boxed out of future dealings. The Congress would also produce a Declaration of Rights. This declaration lays out the rights of the colonists that come from nature and included the right to life, liberty, and property. Rights that the colonists had never ceded to any power. It argued that the first settlers had done so voluntarily, and therefore still held all the rights of their ancestors, who had lived their entire lives in England. As such, their descendants now living in America retained those same rights. The Declaration laid out that their charters should be respected, and that they retained the right to peaceably assemble and petition the king for grievances. Keeping a standing army in the colonies, without the approval of the individual colony, was likewise illegal. The Declaration concluded by informing the king that, should they not back down from the coercive acts and restore American liberties, the consequence would be the boycott that we have discussed today. The delegates prepared different statements to this same effect meant to go to different groups, including to the American people, the people of Quebec, who they were trying to get to join them in resistance, British citizens, and finally, for the king himself. You may have noticed that there was one group that was conspicuously absent from this list. Parliament. This was not an oversight, but a deliberate statement as to the perceived power that Parliament held over the American colonies. It is also impossible not to take notice of the language in the Declaration and compare it to another declaration that would appear in July 1776, and ultimately the Federal Constitution. These concepts of natural rights, rights to life, liberty, and property, would help form the opening lines to the Declaration of Independence. By 1774, the justifications, ideas, and political philosophies that would guide the approaching revolution were circulating openly and were indeed being sent to the king directly. The Congress approved of the boycott on October 20th. After spending a few more days to wrap up the exact wording of the Declaration of Rights, on October 26, the Congress was dissolved. It was agreed that, if necessary, there could be potentially a second meeting to begin in May 1775. Spoiler alert, it will be necessary. The Continental Congress had lasted for just less than two months. Its results had been somewhat predictable. There was going to be a colony-wide non-importation agreement, and, if necessary, a non-exportation agreement the following year. This had largely been expected before the Congress had even been called. The colonies had produced a Declaration of Rights. However, nothing there was really groundbreaking. Nothing about the Declaration of Rights was all that much different than what the colonists had been saying, more or less, for nearly a decade now. Sure, the language had advanced, and the arguments had become more clear over the years but the core complaints and claims were relatively unchanged. The Congress had not done anything truly radical, like voted for independence or war. As Mary Beth Norton states in her book, 1774, the Congress continued to counsel patience and forbearance instead. Therefore, the radical nature of the Congress 
was not in the overall outcome, but in what the meeting had represented. The very fact that the meeting was held in the first place was the dramatic action. Americans had come together with the sole intention of formulating a plan to resist their parent country. Non-importation agreements were nothing new. However, coordinated action by the colonies to deliver a unified response through a Congress, that was far more radical action than the non-importation agreement itself. The fact that the Declaration of Rights purposefully omitted a petition to Parliament was more radical than anything actually in the Declaration. In other words, it was not the actions of the Congress that were necessarily the most radical. The actions chosen were moderate and largely predictable. It was the meeting of the Congress and what it meant that would truly mark it as a key moment of escalation in a crisis that now had people whispering about the very real possibility of a war. Next time we are going to double back and take a closer look at the rapidly worsening condition in Massachusetts. We are going to examine just how those events would help dictate what we just saw in Philadelphia. The next episode should help put events we saw this week into a more clear context and allow us then to move the entire story forward. Until then, I hope you all have a fantastic two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and that you are staying safe. And I will see you back here next time to discuss the end of civil government in Massachusetts. <laughs>